Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. I, are you like sitting in a house that's falling down around your ears? Is that what I've heard? Oh my gosh. I live in a house that was built in 1915 and the like part of the ceiling um, like actually fell. Like <laughs> it actually fell on the stairs. Um, so there's like a little hole in it. Uh, I blame squirrels, but who knows? But yeah, um, this is like the beginning of the fall of the House of Usher. <laughs> Uh, I, I used to have squirrels in my attic in uh, Portland. I mean, you you just could hear them. And I think I actually heard one once giving birth. It was like this. Well, that's beautiful. Yeah, it was, it was great. And they chewed through everything. And we tried like every single way to kill these things. And it, it didn't work. And then, and then like they patched up the holes that they chewed in the roof and they chewed through them again. They're just very, very determined to keep their tribe going. So what are you going to do? Yeah. I know. Um, so, how are you doing today? I'm well. I've already been up. It's uh, 8.41 in the morning here in New York City. I've been up for four or five hours, already been fairly productive, had made some uh, pie crust, and uh, I have a busy couple of days, which we will- You're, Sounds like you're preparing maybe. for an American holiday. I, I am. You know, here's the thing. I know. I, I understand that people think Thanksgiving is like, oh my God, it's so difficult. I, I, first of all, I love it. And I'm also sort of, when it comes to cooking, because I used to cater when I was like in my early 20s, I worked as a caterer. I'm very organized with cooking and I love it. Like you, if you give me a punch list of 20 things to do, I will be happier than you can possibly imagine. Meaning, okay, now it's the shrimp. Now it's the crust. Now it's the lemon curd. And it, I have no problem organizing this stuff and getting a meal on the table. It's just, it's it's fun for me. And so this is a very, it's very- It's kind fun. of a holiday when you get to show off and you can rise to the level of your greatness. That, you know, this is true, Sarah. I'm glad that you've let everyone know that, that yeah. I am rising to the level of my greatness. It, it is, you know, I, but look, here's the thing. I've been very frank about this. I can only do two things. I can only write and cook. So, you know, hopefully I can do them fairly well. Thanksgiving right? is kind of when I rise to the level of my laziness. So do you, okay, what is that like? Sorry, I literally have no idea what it's like to be the person lazing on the couch while the meal is being cooked. I, this is kind of boring sometimes, I'll be <laughs> honest with you. Like I, I am, it, it's, uh, I, I've, over the years, I've had like two things, like I used to do the mashed potatoes for Thanksgiving just because I really enjoyed doing them. So that was the one meal I knew how to do. This year I'm going to bake bread because I've been baking bread recently. Oh. Um, but yeah, like I sit around and it's sort of like, I don't know, because, you know, there's like a football game and I'm over at my parents' place. Like I said, you know, I mean, look, I sound like the most spoiled person ever. Like, oh, and then people bring me food and they put it in my mouth. <laughs> Um, so this is normal, Sarah. Listen, you can't, if you've got a table of 20 people, only two or three people have been doing the cooking. So 17 of those people have been like, how about those Knicks? I mean, this is normal, I know, right? I have, so, you know, I'm, this is where I'm not really, I don't have the classic female experience of being like, oh, Thanksgiving, like I got to work, like I got to do this, got to do that. No, none of it. I, 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 I sit around, um, and it's not my, fa and here's the worst part. Not only am I lazy, I'm not a big fan of Thanksgiving food. 
Okay, we're going to get to that in a second. I'm going to I'm going to kill some of the sacred cows, but we're going to follow a tip from our our friend Stephen Volnetz, who has said to us numerous times, "Hey, ladies, why don't you announce to your peoples what you're going to be talking about today?" So we're going to tell you we're going to be talking about the movie that just came out. She said, which follows the uh, the New York Times Harvey Weinstein story that broke in uh, with 2017, 2016, 20. 17, I believe. Um, we're going to talk about some of the new young grifters in our midst, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX, and of course, uh, Lizzie Holmes, Elizabeth Holmes, who we keep calling uh, Elizabeth Theranos. Um, and then we're going to be doing, I'm doing something new that I'm going to have my um, lovely partner announce for you here. So, right. We're going to yeah. be doing bonus subscriber content. So those of you who subscribe will be able to listen to uh, the last bit where we will, of course, what's that? Paid subscribers. Did I not say that? Yeah, that was an important word that I was missing there. Yeah, sorry about that. I missed the most important part. (laughs) The money. Paid subscribers. Um, And this is a model that we've seen over with our friends at uh, Special Place in Hell. Uh, We love our friends, Sarah Sarah Hader and Megan Daum. They do the last 30 minutes for paid subscribers. And we thought, why not learn from their learn from their example, follow along in their footsteps, walk along with the other greats? Yeah. So we'll and, have some, uh, we'll, we'll try to have like, you know, obviously we'll save all the best part for the, but that's where the pecan pie will be essentially. But, uh, we'll, we'll start with launching that today. Um, and, and may I just, if, if you will humor me for a minute, since you don't have strong feelings about this, though you might, um, there are a couple of things. First of all, there's too much on the groaning table that is Thanksgiving, right? And there are these certain things that you think are traditional that you have to make. You just have to. And I'm going to tell you the ones you definitely do not have to make. You ready? Yes, I'm ready. One, Brussels sprouts. First of all, Brussels sprouts should probably not exist at all. Uh, okay. Are you punching me? Are you, are you, are you raising, raising my hand? hand. To you, yes, Sarah Hebla. No, I'm just gonna say Brussels sprouts are one of the most like redeemed vegetables in our American history because if you go to restaurants for the last like ten years, people have been nailing Brussels sprouts. They've been cha- they changed the way that they've they've uh, cooked them, and now they're like I was just having this conversation at dinner the other night. You can make crispy Brussels sprouts, and they're they're so good. So the old slimy Brussels sprouts, gone, dead. Okay. You don't need them. Okay. But I will, level up on your Brussels sprouts. But, That's but, what I'm telling you. Yes, I agree. First of all, I'm I'm sick of them. But I yes, restaurants do them very well now, and I agree with that. But here's the thing. You can eat them everywhere now. So you do not need to add them to your table because the table's already going to break under the weight of all the food. Speaking of foods that have been redeemed, and this one really should not be, and frankly, I think we should take all of it and blast it into space, would be cauliflower. You go to the you go to Trader Joe's, it's like, would you like some cauliflower ice cream? How about some cauliflower cookies? How about some cauliflower pizza? And the answer is always going to be no. Cauliflower is basically compressed farts as far oh as Oh my I'm God, concerned. compressed farts. It's disgusting. <laughs> and there's no- I have That no, is I'm, a problem. Those cruciform vegetables uh, just do oh. not, yeah, they do <laughs> not treat you right. That is- a, that is a problem with so them. So you're going to be with all your guests and family and friends, and you're going to serve some of this stuff, and you're all, it's just going to be, the house is going to go on fire. So forget it. We're not going to have those. Not that I think that's a big uh, vegetable. So here's something that I absolutely love, and I think I make really well, but you know, there, it's always pretty much leftover 
are sweet potatoes. I love them. I make the mash. Yeah. I add the spices and I add like, I make like a brown sugar syrup and I stir it in and tons of butter. Yeah, but you know no. what? It's just not. Okay. Next. Yeah. Cause... It's not my jam. No. I don't, yeah. It's I just, just don't care for, I don't know. No. Sweet potato fries are a different thing, but well, like sweet, like sweet potato no. mash, sweet potatoes or whatever that is that you're doing. That is just not, I think it's because it's orange. I just, I don't, I don't. Well, that, that could be true. It's like, you don't want to eat blue food, really. Yeah, no, it's like orange with like some runny stuff in it. And I just never, it never, it might taste good. It never appeals to me. Here's, so here's like, do you want to know what my problem with Thanksgiving is essentially? Yes, I do. Is I don't really like turkey. Oh, Sarah, nobody really likes nobody turkey. Nobody really likes no, turkey. No, but I We've say- decided to center an entire meal around a food that nobody really likes. Well, here's the thing. I will say one year we got this new oven when I lived in Portland that had this internal, um, like this the thermometer that you could stick in the meat. And I'd never used it. I was like, okay, we'll try this. This turkey came out so spanking good. We're like, well, if this is what turkey tasted like, I would eat it all the time. The problem is you overcook it. People are not used to, people are not used to cooking a 25 pound or whatever piece of meat. So you overcook it. And then you're afraid you remember like, uh, what was that book? Um, that book where, um, William Hurt in the movie eats the undercooked turkey and he, Anyway, I'm the accidental tourist. The maybe yes, and like he knows, like she knows she's undercooked the turkey, but he eats it anyway because he's in love with her. <laughs> it's like yeah, I don't you know, know what that movie is. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. And some people smoke the turkey, and that seems like a good idea. But we don't do that in the Hepler no. family, no. and we don't know how to do things like that. So I so, did write my menu, and and also I'm gonna I'm gonna kick cranberry sauce to the curb. Though I will say no. that my mother-in-law made. It like she just throws the whole cranberries with a little bit of orange peel and a little sugar, and it's pretty delicious. But I don't think eh, maybe I don't know maybe you, you people kind of like sweet with meat. I do, but um, I'll t- can I tell you my menu? This yeah, of course. Menu. I'm, I'm cooking this year. I'm going to start out with some Manhattan's. Then we're going to have the uh, turkey and then uh, traditional stuffing. And anybody that suggests there should be cranberries or oysters and stuffing will have to leave the table. That's that's a given. Um, we're going to have mashed potatoes with tons of butter. We're going to have pan gravy with like the little crispy nubbins of stuff in that like that fall in the pan when you're cooking the turkey. Uh, we're going to have um, some a watercress salad for its tonic properties. And then we're going to have three pies. Come oh, on. three pies. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you're around for a couple of days, you can eat the pies. So yeah. that that's my menu. I'm going to keep it nice and lean. I think that's plenty of food. There's leftovers. And really, okay, really all I want is the stuffing. I mean, that's the thing. That's 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 the oh my god! I just broke my glasses. Look, I was so excited that I broke my glasses. (laughs) That's how I feel about stuffing. I will just rip apart a pair of glasses. Oh man! Uh, I'm just that was like my Hulk moment. Like when you mentioned stuffing, I break glasses "Ah!" and then I burst out of my shirt. You are so. I know it's because I don't know my own power. (laughs) Like, uh, yeah, like I don't understand why. You know how you're saying like you don't have to have Brussels. Why don't we have stuffing or dressing? Some people call it dressing. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong. Yeah, uh, but why don't we do that all the time? Well, I, you know, the other day I was up, I was someplace and we had to like, we had to make like a super catch it, catch can meal. And I had no prep time and I just like grabbed stuff from the supermarket. And one thing I grabbed was three boxes of um, stovetop stuffing, which is not 
what I make for my stuffing. I make homemade stuffing. And you know what? I'm going to include a recipe in our show notes because why the hell not? Um, but you know what? It's fine. People are just so delighted. You put stuffing on the table. People are like, oh, stuffing. I it's know. So it's delicious. It's like it's my favorite It's so food. good. It's really, really good. Frankly, really, really good. You know, when I was in New York, the, 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 the years that I really enjoyed Thanksgiving were, did you know that, you know, I have one of my best friends from high school is a, is a actress that was in Special Victims Unit, Law & Order Special Victims Unit named Stephanie March. And she was married to Bobby Flay for several years. Ooh. And so I would have Thanksgiving over at Bobby oh, Flay's that, house. Okay. What? Okay. You, what was the menu? Come on. I mean, it was like all these things, but they were like super fancy, you know? It was just like elevated everything. And... That could be good. Yeah. Like foie gras in the stuffing. Well, you know, I just remember like pomegranates and things. I don't remember what they were in. Yeah. I just came back from Israel, as you know, and there's pomegranate in everything. Like everything. You get your hummus. There's pomegranate. You get the tahini. There's pomegranate. You walk down like through the, uh, through the market and they're, crushing pomegranate juice. There's lots and lots and lots and lots of food there. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Bobby Flay did not turn out to be a great husband, but a wonderful Thanksgiving uh, chef. So speaking of not great husbands, um, you and I did something last night. We did it separately, but in the spirit of togetherness. I'm trying to figure out the segue that you just did. Speaking of not great husbands, well, what did we do? Well, oh, no, I know what we did. Yes, I know. We what went we did. to go see a movie. We did. Uh, and I actually, so you took a picture of yourself in the empty theater and I took one of myself too. So we'll, we'll, we'll include our photos in the show notes, but we went to go see the new movie. She said, which is based on a book is the book called that as well? Yes, the book is also okay. called that. The book yeah. Is called that is that as well and it's based on the investigative reporter reporting of I'm going to get the name wrong. Why don't you No, just it's Megan me? Tuey and Jody yes. Cantor. Right. And they were the ones that worked pretty assiduously for I mean it's it, you kind of do know how long because she goes through a pregnancy. Yeah. <laughs> and so you can see so a year or more than a year in investigating Harvey Weinstein and his um sexual assault and abuse of women. And um, now one of the reasons that we saw this uh, decided to see it at the same time was because it flopped at the box office. So you, I was away. I was not paying attention to this at all. I'd heard it was coming out, but you did send me um, some, some, an article or two and basically saying there'd been a lot of hype about this movie, a lot of people talking about it, which, you know, it makes sense. Where is media centered? Media centered in Los Angeles and in New York City, right? These are New York Times reporters. It's really the biggest story of of that decade, right? And um or one of them. One of them, yeah. And and, you know, media people like like this stuff. So of course they're gonna talk about it. They're gonna discuss it. And um so it makes sense that it would get a lot of attention. Having said that, you need to get you need to get bodies into the theater, and that's a different that's a different um, um, problem or dynamic. And people have not gone apparently. I think it cost thirty million to make, and it took in two point six million. Two point two million from okay. two thousand theaters, and it, that that makes it one of the worst results for a major studio release in history, at least according to Variety. Um, and so. You know, the question is, what happened here? And, you know, there's a lot of things going on. I mean, for one thing, 
it, you know, I think probably the the main reason for this is that people that are going to the theater, they want a kind of escapism. You know, Wakanda Forever, uh, which is the Black Panther sequel, has been doing really, really well. Um, when people go to the theater, they want like, like times are hard. And it's unclear that people want to go to a theater and watch times that are also hard. Um, the other problem is that this movie is targeted to kind of middle-aged... Like, who's going to go see this movie? It's going to be people that care about journalism, people that are invested in this story. You're, it's going to be kind of like your middle-aged people and over. This is not a young crowd. And yep. that crowd, it's not clear that that crowd is really going back to the theaters yet. So when I showed up to the theater last night in Dallas, there was exactly nobody in the theater. That, that, well, you know, that's and four people. Four people did show up. I did. I did watch this movie with four other people. But um, but when I got there, it was completely empty. I, I have a comment to make. There's an old movie that I watched decades ago called Sullivan's Travels. And it's about yeah. Joel, Joel McRae and Veronica Lake. I think it was made in the 40s. 30s. 50, 50, yeah. And, and, the 30s. and basically, he's a he's a he's a Hollywood director that really, really feels that he needs to address the problems in the country, the depression and, and all these things. And he he decides to go out and like see Americana so he can make this very moving and important, you know, film about how, what's really going on. And he winds up at one point in sort of like, um, it's kind of like an itinerant men's camp or something like you can tell because, you know, the camera's flashing up people's faces. There's like a missing tooth and unshaven faces. And they're staring at a movie screen and they're laughing and they're watching, if, I, if memory serves, they're watching that like first Mickey Mouse cartoon, the Mickey Mouse steamboat Mickey or whatever it's called. And and McCray, who's kind of like um, he's 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 dressing like down like a hobo himself, he realizes, oh, people want to be entertained, right? And when they have troubles, they want to forget their troubles. Um, which is like one of the reasons, like um, a couple of years ago, uh, during the pandemic, 2020, I think it was the end of 2020, yeah. Um, uh, Bill Maher had a monologue yeah. where he's like, Okay, these Academy Awards for these movies, like we're not depressed enough already with um with with the state of COVID and everybody locked down and people are losing their minds. And so what do what does Hollywood give us? They give us Nomad Land. Right. Which is Francis McNorman shitting in a bucket in an RV. It's just like, you know, maybe that's I mean, I guess that movie did okay, but it's just not I don't know. But I have another another slight take on why this might not be doing well. Like I have some more takes, but I'd like to hear yours. Okay, so one movie that was about journalism that really moved me, I think it won the Academy Award, was um oh Spotlight. God. Thank you. Was Spotlight. I mean, I actually cried in this movie several times. I was so moved by and you know it was constructed like a movie movie and that's fine we're all, we're allowed to do that and it's not but it just was incredibly moving to me the way it was paced and the storytelling but that movie was made you know several decades after it had happened right and we had had a little time and they could like roll out the story this happened really recently okay mm -hmm. and we're still all somewhat um there's a lot of tribalism still going on around uh, what's happened with Me Too, right? And I think it's just like there's not enough quite distance yet to let the story unfold. Like it's like, sorry, let's have a let's have a food analogy. Like you know, you 
a better analogy is like a, a rose. Like you can't make a rose bloom faster than it's going. You can open it up. You can tear off, up the petals and make it look like it's it's kind of completely unfolding for you. But that's not that's not going to work. It takes a certain amount of time, just like it takes to like gestate a baby or whatever. I'm just not sure the audience was quite ready to stand back and look at this complete story unfold. Um, well, I'm going to say it a little differently. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say that there wasn't, what's surprising in this movie? That's my question. What is the surprise? Because you know, as everybody knows how this story ends. We saw it, we watched it, we experienced it. So what are the surprises that this movie is offering? What is the new story that this movie is offering? And it, doesn't really give us much. I mean, there is not like, I guess you could say the surprises are, well, who are the two women that broke this? Who are Megan Tui and Jody Cantor? Now, I happen to be interested in that because I'm a journalist and I know these women. And by the way, Jody Cantor, can I just briefly say? Sure. One of the people that is very influential in my career because she was the youngest editor at the arts and leisure section when she was 28. And she recruited me out of nowhere to write for the New York times. Wow. Yeah. Go Jody Cantor. So I have always owed her a debt. Um, One of the weird things in this movie is she gets portrayed as kind of like a younger person that just came to the New York times. She's kind of like, Oh, I don't have any contacts. It's like, uh, yeah, you do. You're Jody Cantor. You ran the arts and leisure section for many years. But anyway, that, that stuff doesn't really matter so much. Um, but hold on. This is telling me that I have a lost connection. Can you? Yeah, hear I know, me? but it's it's still I can, and it's still recording. This happens sometimes. It's fine. Okay. It's fine. The false alarm. Um. So anyway, uh, but you don't get anything new, and I think I think I was talking with a friend of mine. Um, about this and her name is Michelle and she listens to this podcast. So I'll, I'll give her a shout out. But, you know, one of her points was the real story here is why does Hollywood cover up this Harvey Weinstein for so many years? Like that and that we don't, we don't get that story. And the fact is Hollywood is making this story. Maybe they're covering their asses. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, you know, you one know. of the producers on this on this movie is Brad Pitt. Yeah. Brad Pitt is somebody that knew about Harvey Weinstein because he had dated Gwyneth Paltrow, who had told him. And then Angelina Jolie has said that she told him about Harvey Weinstein and he still made a movie with Harvey Weinstein. He's producing this movie. Like, I want to know the story of why all the people that were in Hollywood kind of turned their eyes on this story for so many years. Well, you know, it's it, in hindsight, you think like, oh, well, they knew, but how much do you know? Maybe like you're seeing an eighth of it. Like you, you don't know. And it's complicated. I will say one of, I thought the best moments in that movie was when, uh, uh, Tui shows up at that, the, the, the attorney's house who's been involved in the payouts. And the wife is like, what payouts? Remember that? That's actually Jodie Cantor. That's uh, Jody Cantor, sorry. yeah. yeah sorry. So and, Jody and so Jodie Cantor is played by the uh, actress Zoe Kazan. She does a great job. Who's I, I, great? Yeah. She who is the granddaughter job. of Elia Kazan? Yep. Who was involved in a different sort of uh, use your voice 
story, which was naming names in the House on American on, on he, House he Committee on the Un American Activities, where he did. He did. He, he did name names. Not that that, you know, that's but if, not, if I whatever. may just for a second, like the anguish that 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 character, meaning the one who had been involved in the in the uh, Harvey Weinstein payouts, which was not public knowledge at this point, meaning payouts to women to keep quiet, the anguish that he showed in a very short scene, that's something I think of what you're talking about here. It's like, let's see the people that basically, you know, pretended in order to kind of keep the money train rolling, right? Yeah. And I wanted a little bit more of a complication about why they did that. Um, why? You know, the other thing I would have liked to have seen, and I know why this movie can't do it, but I would have liked to have seen these two female journalists question the stories of the women themselves. For instance, yeah, Rose McGowan, you and I have talked about what a potentially unreliable narrator Rose McGowan right. is. And if you're a right. journalist and you have somebody who's a source who is potentially unreliable, you have to grapple with whether or not you can believe what she said. Now, this movie can't grapple with that because it needs to <clears throat> portray this world as all the women are telling the truth and all the men are lying or complicit. But see, I don't think it's that complicated. And I would have liked to have seen them grapple with, can we believe this person? Absolutely. And I do wonder, I mean, in real life, I'm sure there were uh, people that came forward that turned out to not be actual leads to include in the story. I mean, that had to have happened. Um, I have a, a couple more comments. I mean, you know how we've heard for years, and, and this is absolutely true, like a movie, like let's say, you know, I'm not gonna, I, I, whatever movie, like from the 80s, like there's like lead action male stars and you see his wife and like she has like two lines, like she brings him a towel or she's like, honey, I'll rub your head. And they're basically, they're just like these blanks. Well, the husbands of these women are basically, they're oh, just I like know. sort of like blanks. I mean, they're kind of like- you, They're you just, like the most supportive co-parent, like blank oh, co-parents. Oh, Park Slope dads. That bugged me too. Yeah. It was, they were very, they were literally given no dynamism whatsoever. They were just like, and it almost, I'm sorry to be- to be really picky here, but they, it was almost like, see, this is what a supported marriage actually looks like. Yeah, no, People, it was. You know, and that, it, it, that, you know, just because like, they'll take care of the babies, they'll take care of this as well, while the, while the we're, and I very well know, and we'll, we'll get into this little, I know what it's like to be so involved in a story that at three o'clock in the morning, my phone is pinging and my husband is just like, you know, he's just lying there as someone is is calling me to tell me something. This happens, and you you're you don't even literally you don't literally even hear what your spouse is telling you because you're just so consumed in the story. So they did that, but these these husbands are just like these supportive new men, like the new men. It's just totally was, they're like was, carrying the baby and taking care so, of the kids and everything like cute. that. And you the don't get this. Uh, yeah, you don't get the sense of like you do get it in. Okay, there's two kind of stories that you get in terms of the complications of their lives. Megan Tui, who is uh, played by Carrie Mulligan, has postpartum depression yes. and she is overwhelmed by new motherhood, which, you know, I, I'm glad we got to see a little bit of that. That's a story that doesn't get told as much. Um, the, later, it's sort of framed as like, I think I'm so upset because my daughter is, you know, 
set up for all the traumas of the world. And you're sort of like, okay, yeah, I don't know about that. I, I kind of found that like, I was like, okay, I mean, it's fine. She had postpartum depression. And I, and I understand they're trying to, they're trying to frame these women's lives as like full women. They're not just investigative reporters. They are mothers. They are New Yorkers. They are wives and their lives are so complicated. And yet they're able to push through. There was, it was to me like a little heavy handed. I did not need seven scenes of the postpartum depression. I just don't I hear you. Yeah. add anything. And also like, um, Jody Cantor's husband, there's like this throwaway lines about his dad who's like having troubles. He's got to go visit his dad. It was like, what? Like, this is just, this is like, oh, we're going to give him a slight personality thing here. It was not, it was not successful. I didn't. Yeah. I mean, this is a situation where for whatever reason, whether <clears throat> like that, these are not memoir writers, you know, like these, these are women that are not particularly interested in revealing the complications of their personal lives. And I understand that. And I would imagine that the book itself barely makes mention of these things because they're not interested in dragging sure, this. Sure, but, but the movie. But this has is a movie those, that right? that has right. the burden right. of trying to make these real characters, and the the it doesn't. It, it's hard to believe that. You know what I spent a little time thinking about is. You talked about Spotlight. I thought the referent for this movie was was different. I thought it was All the President's Men. This is very much the female version of all the president's men. You've got two dogged reporters working against a system. Um, and why did I like, by the way, I liked this movie. Did you like this movie? I I liked it. Um, yeah, I liked it. I didn't, I didn't love it. I found it kind of boring at points. Right. And then it kind of picked up. Um, I, you know what, Sarah, I gotta tell you, it's weird. Like, in spotlight, I as a journalist, it was it was it was wrenching me so much as a journalist. And this part of it, maybe it's because like I've been in the New York Times lunchroom or because I just I felt like I was like a little bit like, okay, what? Like it was not it wasn't So the words I wrote down the words I wrote down in the first 30 minutes were dull but worthy. Yeah. There was there was a little bit of dullness. A little you bit know, it was just sort of like everybody's doing this for the right reasons. Um, you know, this is dull but worthy is what we used to call a story like when I was an editor at Salon where it was sort of like it's an eat your vegetables kind of story. Like we have to cover yeah. it, but but like nobody's really that interested in it because we're not actually going to get into the it, it, it you don't really fully get into the complications of it. So it's not as interesting. Um, however, I do think the movie got more interesting. I, I did enjoy it, but I thought about All the President's Men, which is a movie that absolutely riveted me. Yeah, so, I and by the way, actually. All the President's Men comes out in 1976. It's only two years after Nixon resigned. But a couple things are different. Okay. One is that I think we lived in a different media environment where a lot of that stuff was new to the viewers of the 1976 movie. Right. So you're seeing this right. for the first time, whereas we live in this media saturated environment where we've seen all this stuff. We have been so hit over the head by the Me Too story. Uh, we absolutely. Have, and and if you, it, you because you needed to pay attention to it, it, yeah. was, it was it was required. The other thing is that. This movie like lives in a post Woodward Bernstein era. Right. So like Woodward and Bernstein create 
this model for the two young dogged reporters that go on to change the world. But we have now, for the last 40 years, been living in that world. And so, you know, there is a certain careerism that takes over when you are on one of these stories. Now, I'm not saying that Megan Tui and Jody Cantor were doing this for their career. I'm just telling you that they probably perceived themselves or other people perceived them as a Woodward and Bernstein story. Um, okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, I mean, I'm just saying that it's not as surprising that they rise to the level of getting the Pulitzer because there was tons of money and and resources pumped into that with the hope that they would be. Remember what she said to her, uh, said, can you get on a plane? Can you get on a plane to Wales? Like, how much money did they spend reporting this story? Which, I mean, that's that's not, I'm, I'm not holding that against it. I'm just saying it's not as surprising when they go on to kind of, to have this story blow up because it was designed to do that. I'm Whereas the, the the Nixon story snuck up on them. You know, it was something that was buried and then it was, you know, like part of what you're you're watching over that movie is the transformation in, for instance, Ben Bradley, who runs the Washington Post, you know, like believing in this story and knowing that they need to do this. There is not that transformation here. And you- and they they kind of oh like they kind of always know they're on. I mean, this is Harvey Weinstein. Now, one of the tensions we have is that Megan Toohey had been the person that broke the um, some of the Trump sexual assault allegations, and right. it didn't that's do it's, anything. Yeah, that's and so how it's she, out. yeah, so she's kind of moving forward with this idea that like we can do all this and put our lives on the line, but like it's not going to make any change. Which okay, fair enough. I can believe that she might think that and that somebody would be would be doing this story operating under the impression that maybe it's not going to going to make any change. Of course as the audience we know that it will. Um but so I I just to me there is something I don't know there's just like some piece of complication that's missing here. And it can't really overcome that. Now, there are scenes that I still, what I really like, I like journalists kind of working the the source. I love that scene where Megan Toohey is trying to get the lawyer to admit how many uh, settlements they'd done. Do you remember this scene? Yes. Yes. Can I tell you my favorite my favorite and what I thought was actually the most successful kind of part of this was the young Irish woman. Yeah, definitely. Who, who, we, it's weirdly like I went to a multiplex. I don't know if you've ever had this happen. Uh, years ago, my daughter and I went to go see the September issue. Oh, yeah. And we sat down in the theater and and we're watching and all oh, of a sudden yeah. there's these pictures of like cows being slaughtered and we're like, wow, I didn't think the movie would start this way. It turned out we were in Meat is, Meat is Murder, the Michael yeah. Moore movie. So like the movie started yesterday and I was like, am I in the right? I, I thought right I was theater? in the wrong. I thought I was in the yeah. wrong theater too. Because yeah. um, it starts with um, people in red coats, like dragging yeah. something onto the shore. Like it looks like a war movie. In any case, um, 
her story, when you we started talking about this, it's like, well, what are they showing us that's new? Okay. That was new. This was new. And this was also unbelievably emotional. And the acting was just outstanding. I mean, she, I don't know who this actress was. Oh, by the way, the guy that played um New York Times, I think it was the reporter. He was playing the reporter, Matt Purdy. He was like the bald guy who was always yeah. um, sitting. I went to college with him, Frank Wood. He was, nice. uh, he was a great actor in college and he's gone on to do extremely well. Um, but um, that was new and that was moving. And that particular part, was successful when they start they wanted to show a family dynamic. They wanted to make these people rounder. They couldn't really make the main characters rounder by showing them their cardboard husbands, right? Yeah. Though there were some moving scenes with um with Jodie Cantor and her daughter, I, I have to admit for sure. Yeah, um, that was her part was that, yeah, you know, she was yeah. gone so much that she right. missed her daughter. And and you know, and that is that it like to focus on the lives of those women, I think is germane because that is a different like that is something that is different when you are a female investigative reporter. And it's something that all my female investigative reporter friends deal with, you know. I think I've told the story already uh, on the podcast, but one more time um, when my daughter was four and I had the opportunity to drive across the country to go interview uh, John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer. Um, I, my brother's a former girlfriend who my daughter knew extremely well stayed at my house and my daughter's dad was around. Like it was, it was fine. She'd be in very good hands, but she was four. And um, when I got back, she said, mom, I had a dream that you got in a car and I was running after you in the car, trying to grab onto the bumper and you were just staring out the window at me. Yeah. I mean, you want to stick a knife in your head when you hear this, but you know, you also, I, I never would have not gone. I mean, work, you, you have to do the work. I saw a comment somewhere and we'll, we'll try to wrap this up because we want to, we want to talk about a few other things, but, um, that someone said they were glad they made this movie. They just wished that they'd done it right. And I, I don't know exactly what that right would have been. Um, but I think the assessment in the, I think it was the variety article that you sent to me was that a, people kind of want to be entertained. And also we've got new and kind of, look, Harvey, if you didn't think Harvey Weinstein was a pig before you saw this movie, there, there is no doubt. I mean, the man is a fucking psychopathic pig. Maybe his children love him. His wives love him. I don't know. But some of the things that they uncovered are just so beyond um, gross um, I just lost my, lost my train of thought. Oh, I was going to say, we have new villains in our midst. And the, these are the villains we're paying attention to now. So maybe people have just sort of like, and that's kind of also a great thing. We've moved on. Right. Um, and, and, and the lessons and the things that were learned have been incorporated into our lives. But right now, we're just not ready to give our attention to this issue. So real quickly, I want to tell you two things that I thought were interesting that the movie doesn't really dwell on. One, it's, it's probably not the business of the movie to do that. But Lisa Bloom, the daughter of oh, Gloria yeah. Allred, oh. being an advisor to Harvey Weinstein is a story that I want to read. Because no, Gloria Allred, if you don't know, is one is probably the most famous feminist lawyer, you know, who has made her career... Uh, representing victims of sexual assault and her daughter, Lisa Bloom becomes in a pretty high profile way, the advisor to Harvey Weinstein during this time. I mean, that is a kill your mother 
kind of story that I want to see. Well, so it's that's interesting to me. Speaking of the people that maybe like, what did she know? What like how much like the movie makes a, a point to say that she had sold, you know, she had sold a movie to the Weinstein Company. It's a it's a book that she had written about Trayvon Martin and it was being turned into a docuseries. It's since been, I think, shelved. But, you know, is that what's going on? Or later she said, you know, I saw pictures of the women in the like Harvey Weinstein's lap after they had filed their complaints. And to me, that just seemed to to suggest that they weren't valid. Like that's the interesting, you know, when do you believe women? How do you believe women? What are the, like, those are the complications that I wanted to see. Here's the other thing that I think that I wish would, did you want to say something before I No, went? I just want to say we're talking about complications. Why have why did they not me- mention Aja Argento in this piece right. at all? Well, because she's not she's she's in the New Yorker piece. She's right. not in she's okay. not in the New York Times piece and she does but you're right. And and you know, and again, no complications about Rose McGowan, no complications about the the women that are coming forward. Here's the other thing I wish they had gotten into. That woman, Lauren O'Connor, whose memo they get, she had filed a complaint against the Weinstein Company, and then she had withdrawn it after a non-disclosure settlement. And Jody Cantor gets it. And Lauren O'Connor didn't want her story to come forward. She did not want them to use that story. And they used it anyway, which is an interesting thing that you do. Like... This person is saying, hey, I don't want my name. This is called She Said. I don't want you saying that. <laughs> and I, they went forward with it because they had the claim. Now, that's an interesting thing. So, okay, so let me see if I got this right. Because, of course, I remember the scene, which is a very powerful scene, actually. It's one of the better scenes in the movie. Um, so she gives her, Lauren Connor gives uh, No, Joey. Lauren O'Connor is never in touch with them. This was given to her, her. I think she, I'm pretty sure she got this from the Jewish financial guy that she's meeting oh, with. And he, so, and he sets his phone on the table and he says, do what you want with this. Yeah. And so she gets a claim from 2015. Well, this is very tricky. Okay. This is very, very tricky. You're a jerk. And, and look, Sarah and I very well know that when you're writing a story, you got to be super careful. Like, obviously, off the record is right, off the record, and background, what can you use? I and mean, if I'm going to give you this, if someone slips you something, I now have this information. Yeah. I have it. I, I have it in my possession. I didn't get it from maybe the people that are named, but I have it now, and it's an important part of my story. So do you call every single person that's mentioned in there and say, oh, hey, is it okay if I use this bit of information? You probably don't. And they call Lauren O'Connor and they say, you know, hey, we're going to go forward with this. And she's like, yeah, I don't want you to. I mean, she probably, and I'm reading Lauren O'Connor's mind, doesn't want people to know she took a payout. Like basically her complaint is this is a toxic environment. Women are endangered. She probably doesn't want people to know she took a payout to make that go away. It's and they went forward with it and they I you you see it like at like but if you're if you weren't a most people are going to not even pay attention to this. I, and I, I think that I would have liked to have seen that conversation. The movie again I'll go back to the rose analogy or whatever. It could have been 
expanded, meaning to include some of these things, to sort of make it a little more fulsome. Is fulsome, am I using that word right? Or is fulsome one of those words that means the opposite of what you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Like nonplussed? Nonplussed is wrong. It means confused. Exactly. And people always use it wrong because it sounds like it sounds like it should be like, oh, I, I just stayed calm in the face of adversary. Um, okay, I think we have, uh, we have. I, I, oh, I was, the last thing I was going to say is that I will say as the movie continued on and they started to get some pieces as a journalist, this was, um, this is, a, I obviously can relate to this. When you work this hard on something and then you start to get the pieces you need, it's, it's, it, it's a feeling kind of like nothing like it. So I like it. So I liked it for that reason. I liked yeah. watching the, the, that's why the movie picked up steam for me because yeah, you start exactly. to see the, the puzzle pieces slot into place. It's exciting. Um, the actresses are, are great. Um, it's a well-made film. The director is Maria Schrader, uh, who did the Netflix series Unorthodox. And, um, you know, I, I liked it. I, but I, but I actually don't have a, it's to me, it's not a mystery that people didn't show up to the theater. Um, and by the way, Harvey Weinstein trolled them. Uh, he sent out a statement through one of his representatives that basically said like, Hey, there's nothing to see here. And Harvey Weinstein as a producer would have known that. But you know what is interesting, and it sort of goes to a little bit to answer your question about why did people like a Brad Pitt or whatever, I don't know what Brad Pitt knew and didn't knew, please don't quote don't yeah. me. Um, you know, here's the thing, as much as of a, a, a horror show as he was with all these women and this this part of her life, his life and so manipulative, he and his company were putting out incredible movies that we all went to see. So, you know, he obviously had some talent in this area, as much as you might want to say, well, fuck him. You know, I don't care about that talent because he was a pig. Well, okay. But he did make, you know, I don't know, 20 or 30 movies that we all like, they came out, you went to see them. Dude, the like, Harvey Weinstein era of Merrimax. I mean, that yeah. guy, that guy yeah. had the golden touch. He was amazing. Right. right. And, you know, so, and that's, and, okay, that's a different movie. I get it. I still want to see that movie though. And I also might recommend that movie because I, for this movie, I would not recommend this. I would recommend this movie for journalists. I would recommend um, this movie to journalists. You know, but as a, like a movie to go see, like if my daughter's like, should I go see it? I'd be like, no, probably not. I don't, I don't know. Maybe if, you, if, it, if you're on a plane, maybe. Um, but speaking oh, of old villains, let's talk about new villains. Let's talk about new villains. Let's talk about the new crop of con people here. So one story that's just been in like basically flashing in everybody's eyeballs for the past, what is it, like 10 days, is uh, Sam Bankman Fried, who ran a uh, crypto uh, company conglomerate, agglomerator uh, called FTX. I know practically nothing about crypto except that Bitcoin bought me my car because I bought at the right time and now just have like a tiny pittance still there over at Coinbase. Um, but he was basically, as someone said, he was like, look at my magic feather. I throw it on the bed and it makes 20 million more magic feathers, which then I disperse into the world. And I'm so good. It was basically all a lie. Like all a lie. I read some quotes that I sent to you yesterday. Let me actually see if I can, if I can pull it up here because it's so unbelievably shocking what people will 
believe. Well, as this story was gaining, I'm just going to say this while you're looking that up, as this story was gaining currency, you know, and it was, it was going from like the corner of my eye to the center of my screen. I was like, oh my God, am I going to have to learn what cryptocurrency is? Like, is that going to be part of what, like, what I have to do? I don't even understand how real money works. So I haven't gotten that yet. Like the stock market is so confusing to me. It all seems speculative. It all seems made up. So the idea that there's extra made up currency, don't, well, don't do it. It's definitely more extra made up than the stock market. I can say as the daughter of a stockbroker, but, um, so let me, so the, the, this week's New York Magazine has a big uh, story about all of this. And it starts out like, explain this to me as if I were a five-year-old. Then the next thing is, explain this to me as if I were, as if I were a 10-year-old. And it's so like really- I thought this was so smart. Doing exactly this. But let, here's a quote from um, the earlier piece that I think was in the Wall Street Journal. Um, it says, Mr. Bankman-Fried's companies had neither accounting nor functioning human resources departments, according to a filing in federal court by the executive brought in to shepherd FTX through bankruptcy. Corporate money was used to buy real estate, but records weren't kept. There wasn't even a roster of employees to say nothing of the terms of their employment. Bankruptcy filings say one entity's outstanding loans include at least $1 billion to Bankman Freed personally and $543 million to a top lieutenant. The lives of the people who ran FTX and its related companies were similarly blurred. 10 of them lived and worked together in a $30 million penthouse at an upscale resort in the Bahamas. So this was basically a bunch of young people, like 30 and under, living with magic money. It was like magic beans. I was in a deli yesterday and there were two guys, maybe they were like 40, they're New York guys, right? And one guy says to the other guy, he's like, you know, people that were under 30 were like, yeah, they believed FTX. People that were over 30 was like, what? What is this, magic money? It's like, if you know anything about finance, and even though Bitcoin is is confusing and confusing to me, I finally did have someone explain it to me. And Michael Moynihan actually did a really interesting uh, Vice segment that we'll, uh, we'll put a, a link to about crypto. Um, it made no sense. And the reason it made no sense is because it made no sense. And uh, your friend and pr- someone I've interviewed and met, uh, Walter Kern, who mm. has written about con artists. Of course, yeah, I've yeah, written yeah. about a lot of con artists. He basically said, this guy is a con artist. That is who he is. He was able to tap into the now. What do con artists do? Do con artists now come and say, hey, I've got a great uh, a great deal for you on a straight edge razor or on horseshoes? No, because nobody gives a crap about that. They go for the now. What is the now? What is the hot, 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 hot now? Crypto. Okay. That's what the con artist is going to con you with. Because first of all, it's so now. Second of all, people have made tons of money on this. Third of all, you don't understand it. You don't understand it. So it's just, in a way, it's like absolutely the most obvious thing to go into a con for. And for a couple of years, Sarah Hepla, it worked, including that I read this morning that, you know, his parents who were, are they the professors? The Stanford professors. Stanford, but he, they, he bought them, I guess, with their help or their, uh, they agreed to it or wanted it or whatever, a $16.4 million uh, vacation home in the Bahamas. And I'm like, where's, what has my slacker daughter done for me? I haven't gotten one of those. It's like, they just all kind of went along with it. Well, 
I don't know what's going to happen now in terms of all this, like they're, they're in bankruptcy. So I don't know what they have to give back, but right. And what happens to that $16.4 million house? Like, does that still, does that currency still hold? Like, I don't understand. I don't understand how things work. Well, if you, I mean, you obviously can, okay. So you can, okay. I don't know a lot about crypto either, but I do know that when you own crypto, you can buy it and you can sell it, right? And you, I would sell some crypto and cash would wind up into my account and I went to CarMax and I bought a car. Okay, so I, you know, it transfers into our more are more commonly used money, but you can also buy things with crypto. I mean, that's that's sort of the reality. Even like traditional banks and stuff are, are getting into it. Well, people be a little shyer now since, you know, everything is kind of shitting the bed. But let's see what happens. I, I do understand a little more about crypto that I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it wrong. So I'm not going yeah. to go into it. But basically, the Bitcoin that I own, even if it goes down to like one penny, I still own it. It still exists in the world. Unlike if I have a $100 bill and then it becomes a penny, it's a penny. It doesn't go back to being a $100 bill, I guess, unless you have it invested somewhere. The crypto does. Anyway, I You know, I know what my favorite part of this story is? Is his whole deal about effective altruism. Like his whole game about, I'm not making money for myself. No. I'm giving it away. That's right. That's what... Like he had this whole theory about like he was donating to climate change and like curing tropical diseases and all this stuff. I think the Democratic this, Party, too, if I'm not mistaken. What's that? Oh, yeah. Tons, yeah. Like, yeah. tons yeah. of donations to the Democratic Party. And then the guy whose whole brand is like, I give my money away, is defrauding people. Absolutely. That's the best cover. Absolutely. When you're a con when you're a con artist, you've got to appear sympathetic. You've got to appear like I'm on your side. That is like, listen, if you meet someone like out of the blue and they start using we, like, oh, should we go to the run away? Okay. As soon as they start insinuating themselves too quickly, and it's just 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 go. Um the, the other, other thing is I think that the Mark Zuckerberg like uh model for CEO is such a problematic one because it's like you're reading these stories and it's like, you know, he showed up 20 minutes late and he was wearing flip-flops and he was like in torn shirts and he was sitting around on beanbags and it's like anybody in another era would look at this guy and be like, this guy doesn't know anything. Well, and instead we live in this era where like that makes him a genius. Well, you know, even you know, at least Zuckerberg was wearing like a clean hoodie. You know, this right. guy is just a slob. I he's mean, he's a slob. He's blubby fat, his t-shirts. He looks, he looks ridiculous. I mean, he looks you if he, that was your son or your brother, or whatever, he walked in, you'd be like, dude, go put on a proper shirt. Okay, you look gross. But, you know, he, you know. Part of that, they also apparently there was a, a piece that they were doing like tons of amphetamines and it was just their lives were oh yeah shambolic, <laughs> shambolic. okay. Um, so I read an interesting quote today, which I think is completely true in terms of sort of our fascination with this story because first of all, it's sort of you know everybody's heard of crypto that's paying attention to this story and there's a lot of money involved in this kind of shambolic dude. And um, why are we paying attention to this? And it was an article about uh, Schadenfreude that was in B Bloomberg, I think. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Come on, I have to say all these words wrong. What's the other one I keep saying wrong? Swat, swat sticker? Oh my God, swat sticker. I'm never, that's like when the <laughs> like kid sticker, says right? the word wrong and you're like, I'm never correcting them. <laughs> Pot sticker, swat sticker. The fact um, that you say swat sticker is okay, amazing. Okay. Um, anyway, he wrote, uh, justice can be hugely emotional. We, we get involved in wanting people 
that we perceive to have uh, done wrong, even if we, especially if we believed in them, we, there's just a certain, it's a certain almost communal need for the arena to see these people humiliated. And the, the other person who's in the barrel who just got 11 years in prison is Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, who we've talked about, who I've written about. I can't hi- more highly recommend Bad Blood, who uh, John Carreyrou, who wrote the um, the book about her early on, the Wall Street Journal reporter who started smelling her out very early. I think everybody who's listening knows the Theranos story, but a long time ago when she was quite young and just out of Stanford, she created, she said she created this technology where you could just use a drop of blood as opposed to a venous blood draw. You could use this drop of blood that could then detect, you know, a whole host of diseases or potential diseases. And it turned out that it was, and people loved this. She was young. She was not conventionally attractive, but attractive. She was she dynamic. Those big blue eyes. Very, very big blue and eyes she, that would never blink, which yes. I think was affectation, as was the voice. You know, she she started like going into meetings like this and she dressed like Steve Jobs. She dressed like meetings. Steve Jobs. And I, you know, I think people are so hungry for a female, for a female tech hero. You know, I mean, they, she, her, her investors are are legion. The Betsy DeVos and her family, uh, George Schultz, uh, who you know was was just absolutely when his grandson came to him and said, you know, Grandpa, this is not real. He's like, no, absolutely not. And like, it, it's actually there's a it, it, it's an incredible story. It's an incredible book, and you should read it. But um, um, well, it turned out not only was this not true, it was so unbelievably the the machine that they were like apparently that read the blood that they would they have to i mean at a certain point people like are very happy to believe you including what was it walgreens that invested something like hundreds of millions of dollars to have these blood testing centers in all of their pharmacies you know at a certain point people kind of want to see the machine and it was literally like a fucking hamster cage that they built it didn't work at all. And, you know, a couple of times they'd have to go into a meeting and be like, oh, it must be a Wi-Fi connection or something. I mean, it was all now people were like, was it just that she was hopeful? Maybe. I mean, she was she was promoting this as like we can use this to test this on the battlefield when people are dying. We can use this for cancer patients. And in fact, they couldn't actually do anything except I think they could maybe they could detect actually one thing with a drop. It might have been herpes or something, but they said it was all these things. So people were getting these false readings like, oh, yes, in fact, you you do have whatever it is, diabetes or HIV or something, and you didn't. I mean, this is this is playing with people's lives. And there's a certain idea that like, well, she was just so hopeful and it just got away from her. Okay, could be partly true. There's the thing, you know, her 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 boyfriend at the time, whose name I'm forgetting, it begins with a B, who had made tons and tons of money and he was now allied with her. Well, you know, she was sort of like badgered by him. Well, that, I don't know, that could be partly true. But blame the, the men. Always, it's always a good, you got to always blame the men. They're always there. You, power like, differential, off, right? but yeah, blame do it, them. do it. Um, we're going to get into that in our second uh, second segment of someone that someone said something to me yesterday about the patriarchy. I'll, I'll lead off our second segment with that, our bonus episode. But um, the fact of the matter is, she did not have these t- this technology. And a grown-up who was not a con artist uh, would have said, well, you know what? This is something I believe in, and I believe you people believe in me, but it's not ready. And um, I don't think she did that. I'm going to err. I'm going to lean to the side that she is not a naif, that she is a con woman. 
And, um, but you know, I could be wrong. I know, but she cut such a sympathetic figure. She's pregnant now. Well, you know, people, people really have it in for her. They're like, she was fucking with people's health. I just think, I mean, the amount of people that she took in because people wanted to believe people, Sarah, this is a beautiful invention and I hope someone is working on it. I mean, that would be great. But people that are super cynical are like, well, you know, she just got pregnant. So people would be sympathetic for her. I, I have no idea. No, I, 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 I mean, yeah, we have, we have no idea. I, I, that's not where my mind goes. But she has um, a young child and she's pregnant again. And, you know, she's facing 11 years in prison. And um, people say, you know, this is pretty, pretty rough. Um, this is a pretty strong, um, strong sentence. And I, I, I would agree with that. I would agree that it's, but, you know, these sentences are infused with our, with our, I don't know, with our anger. I, I don't know. Well, like we, how- we, um, what I was thinking about with these two young hustlers, um, is that, I, and, and I think I might be projecting here a little bit, but we live in a time where, you know, anybody, like you said, over a certain age, I mean, you know, sometimes you feel like you're just like out of touch with this world. Like, like, I don't even know how cryptocurrency works. What are these new people that are bringing up startups and, and, um, businesses and, and go-getters. I don't even understand this anymore. And so when it turns out that, that, that they don't understand this either, and that it's empty, there is such a like psychic relief of like, oh my God, it's not so much that young people have it all together and I'm an idiot or whatever. That This is me projecting. But that's why there is a certain like special glee in seeing these people fall down. And I would imagine if you're in the same age range with them, there's a certain schadenfreude because, you know, these were people that made millions and made their name and all this stuff. And then, and you haven't, you're still working, like getting coffee at the, uh, you know, the gas and sip or whatever. And, and these people are millionaires. And then it turns out, oh yeah, they're millionaires because they cheated. So uh, there's a Chris Arnotti. We've mentioned him before. He's uh, he's got this really cool site called Walking the World, which is what he actually does. He walks the world. But he had a tweet today, basically saying, you know, when I'm looking at something that's so incredibly complicated, and I'm thinking, wow, I'm just not smart enough to kind of follow along. In fact, it's just that it's not actually real. <laughs> it's just to, you know they're trying to make it like I mean there are things that are extremely complicated, but th- this was not. This was a con. And um, that reminds yeah. me of like when I got to college and I would read these academic journals and be like, I'm just not smart enough to understand this. And then eventually I realized, oh no, that's bad writing. That's right. Um, I think I'm going to call it right now, Sarah. Going to call our uh, the end of our little uh, first episode for everybody free always and forever Wakanda forever. Um, uh, so in our next segment, we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about um, the power of the pussy. We are. We're going to be talking about the power of the pussy. And we've got, um, and also we're going to talk about what's in our hot box. I don't know. Those two things are not exactly related. <laughs> but, um, um, so anyway, um, guys, stick with us, subscribe, and um, I'll see you in a minute, Sarah. Okay. See you in a bit. See you on the other side. Smoke them.